With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Age of Jackson podcast, a podcast about Annabellum America, hosted by Daniel Galata. Each episode, Daniel and a guest expert will unpack how the people and events of the early United States shaped their world and ours. To stay connected and up to date on the latest episodes, Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite listening app. You can also follow the Age of Jackson podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. If you enjoy listening and learning about early American history, leave a review. And now, here's your host, Daniel Galata. Greetings, listeners, and welcome back to the Age of Jackson podcast. I am your host, Daniel Collotta, PhD student in religious studies, specializing in American religious history at Stanford University. And today I am joined by Sherry Rabin, assistant professor um, at the College of Charles, and she is the director of the Pearlstein Lepore Center for Southern Jewish Culture, and she's the author of the new book, Jews on the Frontier, published with NYU Press. But I like to begin with uh, sort of origin questions when it comes to people's books. Uh, So just first and foremost, where did this book come from? What's the origin story behind it? Yeah, so I was in graduate school, as you are, in religious studies, uh, and I was interested in thinking about Jews in relationship to American religious history. And I thought I'd focus on the late 20th century, but then I took a class on religion in the American West and kind of discovered the 19th century. Um, And I found that there was not a whole lot of exciting scholarship written on this period in American Jewish history. People are usually more interested in the turn of the 20th century and the Eastern European immigrant experience especially in large cities like New York, you know, immigrant neighborhoods like the Lower East Side. But it turned out that there was this whole earlier history um, that was really fascinating. And it often, I think, for lots of people starts with kind of one great source. And for me, it began with finding um, travel letters written by Rabbi Isaac Mayerwise in 1877. Um, That year, he took a trip on the Transcontinental Railroad out to San Francisco. um, And he wrote back to his newspaper, The Israelite, about, you know, what he saw along the way. And it was just so interesting and so different from, you know, what I was reading in American Jewish historical scholarship on the period. And I sort of knew that there was something there that I could could delve into more. So I completely agree with you on all those parts. And uh, for me, uh, my own research at, at this very present moment is on Jews and the Jacksonian coalition. And it sort of started with uh, Mordecai Noah, and uh, has expanded. I was like, oh my God, Jews are at the Battle of New Orleans. Jews are a part of the, uh, you know, they're, Jews are being elected on the, um, you know, supporting Andrew Jackson. I was like, yes. So wonderful sources all over the place. That's excellent. Very, very excited to see what you come up with. Because, yeah, it's, it's a little bit lonely here in the 19th century American Jewish history circles. Although, you know, getting a little bit more, more populated, which is great. 
Well, it's gonna be it's gonna be populated with free thinkers and Catholics and a few Protestants as well. So, and they Great. have to they have to share my attention. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'd like to start with a huge sweeping question, and I know this these are always difficult, but from a God's eye perspective. What do we know about Jews in America? Uh, their arrival, their situation. It's t- talking about this in a sort of grand perspective. What do we know about the first Jews to arrive in America? So they come. The first community of of Jews in what becomes the United States comes in 1654 from Brazil. Um, Brazil had been under Dutch rule, which was relatively tolerant of Jews, and suddenly the Portuguese come in um, and things are looking less favorable. So Jews, a, a community of Jews leaves for New Amsterdam. Um, and for most of the colonial period, um, Jews are living in sort of cities along the eastern seaboard. Many of these Jews are what are called Sephardic Jews. Um, they had origins in the Iberian Peninsula. Um, and in 1492, they were um, expelled from Spain by Queen Isabella and and, um, King Ferdinand, or they had to convert externally to Catholicism in order to remain in in Spain. Um, And some of those Jews remained sort of secretly Jewish um, within their families for generations before leaving the Iberian Peninsula and returning to um, public Jewish identity. So um, many of these port Jews, Jews sort of living um, in places like Charleston, where I live, Savannah, uh, New York, Newport, um, Philadelphia. Many of them um, trace their their family histories to um, to the the Iberian Peninsula, um, and so they live during the colonial period in these places. Many of them are merchants, um, so they're looking eastward across the Atlantic for um, economic ties and also for um, religious ties and religious authorities. Um, but where things kind of get going for for me um, is is in the 19th century when um, I see a transition from. Jews in the in America being port Jews, really closely linked to those eastern seaboard cities, um, and they they start to become mobile Jews. They start to instead look westward um, across the expanding American continent, um, and this is true amongst Jews who are native born and who also trace their um, their roots to the Iberian Peninsula. Um, we also see in the the 18th century a rise in um, in Jewish immigration from Central Europe, um, Jews who are identified as Ashkenazi Jews. Um, and then in the first half of the 19th century, we get the first real mass migration of Jews to the United States, primarily but not only from the German-speaking lands. I want to focus on some of the words in your title, mobility and frontier. Could you unpack these for my listeners? Why did you want to invoke these terms in particular? Yeah, so I'm relying here on um, other scholars who have done sort of real theoretical legwork in sort of unpacking um, these terms. Mobility is really the most central one. And here I'm drawing on a scholar named Timothy Cresswell, um, who talks about sort of um, the significance of geographical mobility, particularly. And, you know, a lot of historians talk about upward social mobility or downward social mobility. But I think geographic mobility, I found, was really um, important in the 19th century for American Jews and for Americans in general, because that's one of the sort of rights that come with the the founding documents. And in interestingly, in the Articles of Confederation, there's um, a, a explicit guarantee of free ingress and 
regress amongst the several states, um, which is sort of chucked out in the 1789 Constitution. But that principle that people should be able, that at least, you know, white citizens will be able to move unimpeded throughout the different territories, um, that remains a part of, of American law. And it's something that um, Jews are granted access to in the United States and um, which you know, in in much of Europe, they they Jews moved, but there were different kinds of um, restrictions and regulations. Um, it wasn't a sort of um, given right in the same way that it was in the United States. Um, and mobility is interesting also because even as it sort of becomes more and more of the modern world and becomes more of a necessity to the development of the modern economy, um, mobility also sort of raises fears and and you know troubles kind of local. Um, orthodoxies and local communities. So um, Cresswell talks about mobility being sort of the lifeblood of modernity and that which threatens to destroy it. Um, and for Jews in particular, I found that was a, a crucial sort of aspect of of um, American life and and what made it different and and um, unique for them. Um, frontier. I, here I, I draw on a Jewish studies scholar named Xander Gilman. Um, and the frontier for me is not you know just the West. Um, I'm you know, it's it's instead spaces where different kinds of people groups meet and interact and change. Um, and I think, you know, frontier is as much as sort of physical spaces are also kind of mental spaces um, and the new sort of um, ideas and experiences fostered by the realities of of this mobility that Jews and others are experiencing in early America. So let's drill down on the Jacksonian era. What kind of world awaits the Jews in the early United States, uh, the early American Republic? Uh, what type of world are they building? Why do they come here? What is the what does the age of Jackson mean for Jews in America? So Jews start coming to the United States um, more from from the German speaking lands in the in the 30s, uh, 1830s, 1840s. Um, and they come for a variety of reasons, um, mostly sort of economic opportunity, um, but also sort of um, because of the, the various restrictions on Jewish activity, economic um, activity, Jewish residents, Jewish religious life. Um, that exist in Europe in this period. Um, but what they find when they come to the United States and what Jews who you know are already living in the United States by the Jacksonian period are, are sort of dealing with is a, is a new world created first by the, the founding documents. And I do think it's really important that the United States founding documents never mention Jews at all. Jews kind of get in under the wire as you know free white persons who are granted the, the rights of citizenship. Um, and that is, is going to have a lot of, of implications for um, what Jewish life looks like. So there's this sort of excitement and hope of the founding documents. And you have letters um, in the early years of between Jewish communities and George Washington, for example, talking about how excited they are to be granted these privileges of, of citizenship and to be incorporated like other white people into um, this new nation. Um, but, you know, it, the, the, new, the nation is not without its sort of challenges and struggles um, and including ones that are, you know, particularly challenging for Jews. So, you know, early America is also being formed by the Second Great Awakening, by sort of increased uh, Christian activity. Um, I, I'm very influenced by David Sahat's work. He talks about how even as um, we see the 
um, end of a formal um, federal establishment on the of religion on the national level, right? We have the First Amendment, so there's going to be no official religion um, of the United States. Um, and even as those kinds of legal establishments begin to to fall in the individual states, which is its own ongoing process, um, there's also um, a rise of a moral establishment that seeks to sort of um, make Christian ideas and morals sort of part of um, American society and politics. So um, there are things that are sort of part of a broader Christianization of America in this period um, that that are particularly challenging for Jews. So, um, for instance, Christian oaths for office keeping um, are particularly troublesome to Jews. Um, another really important example are Sunday closing laws, um, which also is seen as part of you know creating a moral Christian world, but are but place a particular burden on Jews. Um, you know who have a Saturday Sabbath. And in a period when people work six days a week, if you are legally not allowed to work on a Sunday, you're probably going to feel compelled to work on a Saturday, violating your own Sabbath. So there are some challenges um, that, that Jews face there. Um, and in, a, in addition to being a, a sort of um, world in which Jews now have rights of citizenship, but which they're in which they're facing the sort of challenges of that come with Protestant hegemony. Um, there's also right this sort of new social and economic world being created um, by industrialization in the early 19th century um, and being sort of exacerbated by westward expansion. So um, historians have talked about this as a as a world of strangers um, in which there's lots of uncertainty and upheaval. Um, and that, too, is going to end up um, shaping the Jewish life that comes in the United States. You are listening to the Age of Jackson podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Galotta, PhD student in American religious history. My guest today is Shari Rabin, assistant professor of Jewish studies at the College of Charleston. And we are discussing her new book, Jews on the Frontier, published with NYU Press. If you like the Age of Jackson podcast, don't forget you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasting needs met. And to help support and promote the podcast, leave us a review on iTunes as it helps promote and expose the podcast to new listeners like yourself. Dr. Robin, I know this is a dangerous question for uh, scholars of religion to talk about theology and practice and uh, sort of... Uh, what does the average person of religion X do and and how do we know their religious beliefs and X, Y, Z? But I think for a lot of people um, who aren't Jews in America, Judaism remains a pretty mysterious religion, um, particularly when we think of all the different kinds of Jewish practice and belief and what you might call levels of intensity and the idea of a lapsed Jew, a devout Jew, et cetera, et cetera. So for my listeners who just aren't even familiar with what you, what someone might call religious literacy, to use Stephen Proffero's idea. Could you expand on some of the religious beliefs and practices of Jews in the early 19th century? Sure. Um, so generally, these Jews have a sense that Jews are God's chosen people, and that being God's chosen people comes with a set of um, of laws and and regulations that cover sort of all 
aspects of, of everyday life. Um, Judaism has a system of law sort of built within, built into it, um, known as halakha, Jewish law. Um, so that ha- comes with lots of sort of regulations on aspects of, of the lives of Jewish people. Um, the ones that are most kind of relevant for Jews in early America are regulations on time, sort of in, in the sort of day-to-day, uh, week-to-week sense, and and also in within the life cycle. So um, in terms of more sort of quotidian calendrical time, um, Jews observe a Saturday Sabbath, as I mentioned, um, and a Saturday, the, the Sabbath comes with a um, cessation of work. Um, and it's not just a sort of vague cessation of work. There are, are um, in Jewish texts, there are laid out sort of 39 categories of work that Jews um, may not engage in on the Sabbath. So for instance, Jews aren't supposed to use money on the Sabbath, um, and they're not supposed to you know, go to their, um, participate in, in earning money on the Sabbath. Um, so in addition to the Sabbath, which comes every, every Friday night to Saturday night, um, there's also various holidays, um, that Jews observe, um, the high holidays in the, um, in the autumn, the Jewish New Year Shana and the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And there's also other holidays um, like Passover, um, which commemorates the exodus from Egypt. Um, so Jews in early America are, um, you know, figuring out how to um, observe these, the, the Sabbath and how to observe these holidays. And um, Jews in, in sort of larger communities um, have easier sort of access to um, communities for um, Jewish worship during these times. Um, those port Jews um, along the eastern seaboard up until about 1820, there's one Jewish congregation in each city. Um, and so that's where the Jews in, in that city go if they um, choose to avail themselves of religious worship, although not all do. Um, so in addition to the the holidays, another sort of key aspect of Jewish practice for these individuals is our various aspects of the Jewish life cycle. Um, so marriage is going to be really important here. And this is a big challenge, especially as Jews start moving westward is um, Jews traditionally are supposed to marry other Jewish people. Um, and Jewish identity is passed through the mother and Jewish baby boys are entered into the covenant between the Jewish people and God through circumcision. Um, so finding a Jewish spouse and having the the proper sort of rituals of marriage and then the proper rituals of circumcision for any male offspring. Um, those are going to be challenges for Jews in, in early America. And there's also lots of um, Jewish uh, rituals and regulations surrounding death and mourning practices. Um, so that's another thing that Jews have to have to deal with in the United States. Um, so then, and you know, of course, there's other aspects of of Jewish practice that some more traditional. Jews will will observe, um, but in the the United States, you know, the people who come here tend to be those who are a little bit more sort of fluid with respect to Jewish law, um, and the ones that that tend to be sort of the most important to them are these um, rituals and practices regarding time. Your book makes a point to compare uh, the experience of Jews in Europe to the Jews in uh, the United States. And you've sort of alluded to this already, but could you expand upon this upon, for my listeners? How do the two experiences compare? Sure. So, yeah, what what's, I find significant about the, the differences between Europe and the United States is that in much of Europe, the, the 
the state, the the governments in place are interested in Jews as Jews. Um, Jews are um, denoted as Jews on their identity documents, for instance. Um, and these various European polities have, you know, Jewish policies in place. Um, so being Jewish has, you know, repercussions for um, where Jews are allowed to live, um, where they're allowed to travel, what occupations they're allowed to enter into. Um, so there's state interest in sort of governing Jewish activity and and travel and residence. Um, and as I mentioned, in the United States, you know, I see it as sort of a, an accident of history. They're, the state doesn't see Jews as Jews. So um, they kind of get to be seen as anonymous white people. Um, the the flip side of government sort of interest in Jews is that they're not only sort of restricting Jewish economic and, and other kinds of activity. Um, they're also sort of enabling while also overseeing Jewish religious life. Um, so in many places in Europe where these Jews came from, there were um, government supported religious institutions funded by taxes taken from Jewish people. So in German speaking lands, there'd be, you know, a local Gemeinde is what it was called, a local institution um, that was funded through Jewish tax revenue and overseen by the government. So the rabbi would be, you know, a government appointee. So on the one hand, this meant that Jewish religious institutions and resources were kind of there. Um, Jews didn't need to think about it. Um, but on the other hand, um, governments were overseeing these communities. And when they so cho chose, they could try to, to meddle in them. Um, so for Jews coming to the United States, you know, the ability to move and settle and engage in economic activity however they wanted um, was really remarkable. But then, you know, the fact that the government is also not going to fund r religious institutions um, is is a real challenge. So if Jews are, want to have, you know, forms of Jewish um, communal life and ritual life, they're going to have to do it on their own, um, which is a new sort of experience for them. Well, this raises one of those interesting points that I found particularly fascinating in your book and is what propelling me to do my own research about the connections with uh, Jacksonianism uh, is uh, the issue of race, that Jews do benefit from the fact that for all intents and purposes, they are white. Um, and I know this has been a point of contention for some scholars pointing out arguments have been made that Jews um, in the early 19th century could be sub-white or off-white or however pseudo-scientific or well, not only really scientific yet, but um, that Jews are not fully white in some respect. But it seems for your purposes that while those ideas might be in the air, at the, at the ballot box, they're white. Certainly. Yeah. And, you know, on the road, they're white. No one is stopping them to, you know, check their papers as, you know, free blacks would be stopped. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the legal the legal um, framing of Jews as white is really significant. This doesn't mean that there are never any sort of tensions between Jews and other Americans. Of course, there are efforts to convert Jews um, by sort of enthusiastic evangelicals, which Jews um, don't like. And of course, there are, you know, disdainful comments made towards Jews. But really, the, the moments that people talk about as sort of um, moments of anti-Jewish sort of sentiment, um, I think, are, are limited. And, and they're mostly sort of, um, you know, side effects of broader sort of 
moralistic Christian efforts to transform American society. So there are moments where Jews' distinctiveness um, comes to the fore and attracts negative attention, um, Jewish distinctiveness relative to time and to occupation. So um, Sunday closing laws are a moment of tension because Jews' distinctive Sabbath practices sort of come to the fore. And there are a couple moments here and there um, where, um, you know, explicit, you know, hate disdain for Jews is, is made, is made clear. So in California in the 1850s, they debate Sunday closing laws and there's an elected official who says, you know, maybe this will, you know, keep Jews from, from moving to California, which would be a good thing. So there are moments of that. Um, but it's not the, you know, for most people restricting Jews, isn't the, the main sort of focus. Um, it's a, it's a byproduct. And another sort of moment of tension, um, like this is, is around peddling. So there's a, a general sort of skepticism, um, and, and suspicion of, um, peddling in this period. And there are various efforts to sort of restrict and regulate peddling. Um, and here too, Jews are overrepresented in peddling in early America. Um, so for the most part, it's Jews are sort of, um, overrepresented amongst those affected by these these restrictions. And at a few moments, there are people who make that connection explicit. Um, but for the most part, Jews are, are seen as as white people. And when there are sort of moments of, of anxiety, um, it, it has to do with sort of these broader Christian efforts to transform America, not efforts to sort of specifically target Jews as Jews. Well, I did want to drill down on that a bit more. Um, you say that the are the are you say that there are these moments, but uh, for some of my listeners, particularly my undergrads, um, anti-Judaism is sort of a perplexing thing to many people. Do we know anything about anti-Judaism in the early Republic? Yeah. So what gets pointed to most is these these um, the Sunday closing laws, um, and there are so there are moments of that. And of course, particular sort of Jewish public figures, um, you know, will, people won't let them forget that they're Jewish people like Mordecai Manuel Noah. Um, but for the most part, I, I don't see anti-Judaism as a sort of huge, you know, overarching problem um, for, for Jews, especially when compared to sort of the experience of Jews in Europe and the experience of other people groups in the United States. I guess there, there are moments, you know, people know that Jews are different. And I think, you know, as people have throughout American and really world history, I've tried to figure out sort of what to make of the particular forms of Jewish difference, um, which are not just limited to sort of private belief. Um, so, you know, there's moments where um, some of my subjects, um, you know, meet Christians who have never met a Jewish person before, and they get a range of responses. Often it's actually, you know, a kind of philo-Semitism, a sort of excitement to be encountering, you know, descendants of the people of Israel. Um, you know, there's a little bit of talk. Um, I have one or two examples of, of people, you know, say, saying, oh, you're Jewish, do you have horns? Um, so there, there are moments of that, um, but there isn't a, you know, a, a sort of systematic anti-Jewish, you know, ideology or, you know, 
um, set of of actions that I see in this period. Um, this still during the Civil War. There's you know a few moments where there are sort of explicit anti-Jewish actions um, that are again sort of linked to these distinctive Jewish practices um, related to time and and occupation. Um, but I think what I see really in, in early America is, is more of a the bigger challenge for Jews is not how to become American and how to be accepted by their neighbors. The bigger issue is how do we stay Jewish when we're seen as anonymous white people and it is relatively easy for us to kind of melt into America if we want to. That leads me to another question that's similarly related to uh, Judaism and race, because I know that there are quite a few Jews in the Confederacy, I believe. Not not a lot, but there's a notable amount. What do we know about the relationship between Jews and the practice of slavery or abolitionism? Yeah, so Jews nowadays right, like to think that they would have been all abolitionists, you know, that Jews, you know, drawing on their um, own experiences of persecution would have, you know, seen the injustices of slavery. Um, but alas, Jews were people like other people in early America. And Jews did, you know, participate in um, in the system of slavery and benefited from it. And, you know, arguably even more than other Americans, you know, their efforts to to be seen as, as part of American society um, were likely to make them sort of less critical and more likely to um, sort of blend into the the practices that they saw um, around them. Um, and, you know, for Jews in the South, scholars have argued that they um, were more quickly to be seen as white in part because um, in places like Charleston, there was a majority black population and there was constant fear of slave revolts. Um, so, you know, a- anyone who might add to a, you know, white minority was, was sort of welcomed in. Um, Jews were sort of less likely to be big plantation owners just because Jews were less likely to be involved in large-scale archite- uh, agriculture. Um, but, you know, many Jews were, were merchants um, and worked in other parts of the of the economy as middlemen. And, um, you know, if they had the resources to purchase in, an enslaved person and if they felt like it would help their um, their business, they oft- they often did. Now, your book is full of wonderful examples of uh, Jewish men and women who exhibit this kind of mobility and uh, this uh, this freedom almost um, they receive in the American Republic. And there's simply too many to name. But for my listeners, could you pick a few of your favorite folks uh, to talk about uh, Jewish mobility, Jewish life in the Jacksonian era? Yeah, so I begin the book with Edward Rosewater, who's an interesting character and and amazing because he um, kept diaries um, in the late 1850s into the Civil War era um, where he talks about his experiences. And he was an immigrant from Bohemia to Cleveland um, and as a young man, 18, 19 years old, kind of goes off um, in pursuit of economic opportunity. And so his diaries chart his sort of efforts to find an economic niche and his travels kind of throughout um, the Midwest and the South. Um, And sort of along the way, he describes his kind of eclectic relationship to religion. So he, when he's in a big city like Nashville, he'll go to synagogue. um, But when he's living in, you know, Stevenson, Alabama, he'll go to a you know, Methodist camp meeting and he'll eat, you know, the local barbecue that is probably pork. Um, So he has this kind of, he's emblematic of this flexible relationship um, to Judaism and and this sort of adventurous spirit. Um, He's interesting as well because he ends up being 
um, the telegraph operator who um, telegraphs the Emancipation Proclamation. So he has kind of this wonderful bit part in the Civil War um, history. Um, and then after the war, he moves out to Omaha, Nebraska, and becomes the founding the founder of the Omaha Bee uh, newspaper um, and continues throughout his life to sort of have a proud Jewish identity and relate to the Jewish community, um, but is not a member of a congregation. So he's kind of emblematic. And I, my favorite characters really are these kind of young men who come from the German-speaking lands, especially in the 1840s, 1850s, um, and who kind of go off and, and try to sort of make lives for themselves economically and religiously. And um, their efforts to sort of find other Jews and to create Jewish life, I think, are not totally separate from their economic efforts. You know, um, it's a time of great uncertainty. It's hard to know who to trust. So they try to locate other Jews in order to sort of have a better shot at trustworthy um economic relationships. And I think also, you know, it's jarring for them suddenly being sort of alone and anonymous. Um, and so uh, sort of ironically, this the this um, instability of their lives and their movement um, for a lot of these folks, I think, um, makes them want to sort of seek out some kind of religious identity um, that that is that will provide some kind of stability for them, um, even as they're they're on the move. Um, so there's, I have a lot of a lot of characters like this, and there's also some sort of older um, Jewish families, right? The the native-born Americans um, whose families have been in the United States for a few generations are also um, in the mix, are also you know moving or you know feeling the the challenges of of movement in this era. So there's families like the the Gratzes, um, Rebecca Gratz from um, Philadelphia, sort of a um, the famous example of sort of Jewish women's activity in this period. Um, and she's in Philadelphia and founds the first Jewish Sunday school, um, but also is constantly um, corresponding with family members throughout the country, family members in the South, um, in other frontier areas like Kentucky. Um, so um, she too, even though she's, you know, native born, um, pretty elite woman, lives in Philadelphia her whole life, um, she too is sort of um, feeling the transformations of, of mobility as they're affecting her family and her community. Uh, Manifest Destiny plays a fairly important role in your book. And if I'm not mistaken, I did some research on you and your dissertation was called Manifest Jews, I believe, which yeah. uh, which I thought would be – this is no offense to NYU Press. Uh, I know. Great... They wouldn't let me keep it. I tried. Oh, wouldn't they? Oh, I thought, as soon as I, I was like, I think that's a cool name for a book, but I kind of understand marketing-wise it might be difficult to sell. Yeah. But for my listeners who aren't familiar with the idea of Manifest Destiny, what is it and what the heck do Jews have to do with it? Yeah, so Manifest Destiny, my the publisher thought that um, people wouldn't immediately make the connection to Manifest Destiny or wouldn't know what Manifest Destiny was. And I guess not everybody does, but Manifest Destiny is um, this sort of idea in the 19th century that really becomes very pervasive, um, that it's the United States kind of divinely sanctioned destiny and fate to um, occupy the continent of, uh, of the United States. The idea that westward expansion is not just sort of economically smart um, or politically smart, but that it is in fact sort of undergirded by um, God's will. Um, so this is um, a, a sort of important part of the story of westward expansion in the 19th century. And people usually talk about it as 
a sort of Protestant development. Um, but Jews help show how, you know, this language could be really powerful to non-Christians as well for their own reasons, not necessarily just that they were trying to kind of become part of America, but I think they found it sort of personally resonating for themselves. Um, and it was really powerful for them to be able to participate in this rhetoric um, and to be participate in this kind of national project of westward expansion, especially when you think back to Europe and, you know, Jews weren't granted citizenship in, in much of the in much of um, of Europe and in the German-speaking lands in particular, there was um, these ideas of the sort of the spirit of the nation being linked to sort of blood and land, um, and the Jews were not sort of seen as as really part of the the nation or of the people. Um, and here, you know, Manifest Destiny is sort of vague enough that it allows a place for Jews to sort of um, see themselves in this national project. <clears throat> Furthermore. Jews see it as useful language for thinking about themselves and their own community. So they start using the language of manifest destiny in describing Judaism itself. They, the sixth chapter of my book is called The Empire of Our Religion. And they talk about Judaism as, you know, a standard, the, that the banner of Judaism is will be, you know, established throughout the land. <coughs> and an additional sort of wrinkle in this sort of um, use of the language of manifest destiny by Jews is that, you know, um, they participate also in the sort of darker side of manifest destiny, in the sort of um, displacement of Native Americans and in the sort of anti-Catholic, anti-Spanish rhetoric. Um, so you have them saying things like, you know, here where the war whoop of the Indian once rang, now, you know, the sons of Israel are are praying in, um, in God's language. So um, they're sort of using the sort of um, language of Indian disappearance, but using it to prove the glory of Judaism. And the, the anti-Catholic, anti-Spanish discourse is is interesting, too, because Jews see um, themselves as having a special kind of relationship to that. They say, you know, where the Inquisition once reigned, right, the, the Spaniards who had um, kicked Jews out of Spain in 1492, um, right, um, where, where they once had rule in the West, you know, now Jews are sort of, you know, um, enacting their revenge in a way. Um, so they, they see sort of particularly Jewish things to like in the language of Manifest Destiny um, and use it to argue for the, the spread and development of their own religious community alongside and as part of the expansion of the nation. You are listening to the Age of Jackson podcast. I am your host, Daniel Galotta, PhD student in American Religious History at Stanford University. And my guest today is Professor Shari Rubin, author of Jews on the Frontier, Religion and Mobility in 19th Century America. <coughs> if you like the Age of Jackson podcast, you can jump on over to patreon.com and contribute financially to us to help pay for hosting fees, uh, distribution costs, new equipment, and anything else we might need. Um, as you guys know, I'm trying to raise funds right now uh, to get a better workstation. Doing this off my laptop is proving a little bit more difficult these days as it's suffering for some pretty heavy throttling. So any help you guys could give would be greatly appreciated. Dr. Robin, I like to end out these podcasts with more practical and present questions. Uh, and I'm really curious about the conclusion of your book, where you note that Jews could be a model for studying uh, religion in America. What do you mean by this? Yeah, so I think um, what Jews help to show, I think, particularly well, is 
how the challenges of mobility and westward expansion sort of shaped religious life generally, right? Um, and, I, you know, I think some folks have done work along this lines, but I think, you know, there's more to be done in exploring sort of the religious ramifications of um, of mobility and the the expansion of the nation. And part of what I'm getting at here is sort of a, a pushback against a historiography of American religion that has emphasized sort of Protestantism um, and Protestantism as the model. And so much of the you know, previous scholarship on Judaism has been about how it Protestantized or came to look like Protestantism. And I'm interested in, in sort of reversing the question and saying, you know, if Judaism is the sort of centerpiece, you know, what else can we see ab about American religion writ large? And I think it, it shows the sort of um, the challenges um, that all religious communities um, faced in the sort of social, economic and geographic worlds of 19th century America. Um, and it shows how these factors encourage sort of forms of religious life um, that, you know, scholars have seen as as Protestant, um, but that I think are, um, you know, shaped by the, the sort of broader social and economic context um, and also point to, you know, things like um, ritual and family life and um, institutional development. So I think um, and, and ethnicity. Right. Um, so I think Jews ha help show kind of in relief um, some of the challenges of mobility and, and sort of points to um, religion and religious changes being not just about kind of theology, um, but about sort of a whole range of um, social and cultural practices. Recently, we had the Pittsburgh shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue. And as you can imagine, uh, being a scholar of religion, this kept uh, kept uh, me very busy for the last couple of days. And I'm sure you, um, our whole department and teaching religious classes right now, um, some of my students were asking pretty heavy questions, just similarly just perplexed. Like, I just don't understand how Jews get blamed for X, Y, Z. Um, and sort of my dark, dark humor was just like, nothing seems to unite people on the political left and right is hatred of Jews. It just seems to be the longest going hatred in the world, um, that unites people, um, across so many different strange ideologies. And as a scholar of Judaism and a teacher of religion, I'd love to get some of your thoughts uh, on this. Any, advice or counsel or insights you might be able to share with my listeners? Yeah, I mean, I think the persistence of anti-Semitism in sort of all kinds of, of forms points to the sort of trickiness, again, of, of kind of classifying Jews and figuring out, you know, what is Jewish difference? How do you explain it? Um, and, you know, it, it the, the sort of protean nature of Jewish difference enables it to be kind of fit into a wide range of, of sort of um, dark visions of what that difference is and means. Um, and there's been a lot of smart writing on this in the, um, in the press in the, the days um, since the attack. Um, Lila Corwin-Berman, Jonathan Sarna, um, Jacqueline Granick and, Granick and Britt Tevis. So people have been writing really interesting things. And I actually, I had a tweet of my own go viral a bit. Um, I, I got retweeted over 500 times. Um, and I was just kind of pointing to the, the history that the, the stuff that we've been talking about today and sort of pointing out the the, that Jews have been in the United States kind of from the beginning and that, you know, as a counterpoint to some of this anti-Semitic rhetoric, you know, the Tree of Life congregation dates to 1863. And even that early, it was the third largest, the third congregation in Pittsburgh. So 
Um, you know, this just sort of making the point that this history points to the the sort of centrality and, and sort of long persistence of Jews in the United States. So to present Jews as outside of the the American community is is false. Um, but I think for me, in thinking about how to contextualize this for students, a number of things have sort of come up, um, which some of these other scholars have, have written about in more detail. So for me, the first place that I went to um, was the 1958 bombing of the temple in Atlanta, which um, was during the civil rights era. And and there was a number of bombings and attempted bombings on Jewish congregations during the civil rights era. Um, and that, too, is a moment in which sort of um, for the perception of Jewish alliance with progressive political causes led to the targeting of Jewish congregations. Um, so that's kind of one one sort of um, historical context. And another one um, that Granick and Tevis pointed to is um, the history of sort of um, anti-Semitism and nativism, right? And the the bomber, uh, the the shooter in, in Pittsburgh, had tweeted about the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society um, before he went on this attack. Um, and that that so they in their um, op-ed in the Washington Post sort of lay out the history of Hayes um, and how sort of anti-immigrant sentiment and anti-Jewish sentiment have really been intertwined um, for much of American history. So um, again, sort of. Jews get sort of associated with sort of broader social changes, broader forms of political activism, um, and then are specifically targeted. Um, and I think it's interesting, too, because, you know, we've talked about how Jews have you know, been seen as white, have been privileged for much of American history and right scholars of American religion talk about, you know, tri-faith America after World War II and um, how Jews, you know, get to be sort of seen as part of America through their religious um, identification, um, even as, you know, religion is kind of limiting in some sense for describing sort of forms of Jewish difference. But it shows that even, you know, Jewish sacred spaces are never totally off the hook for um, these kinds of, you know, anti-Semitic fantasies and and conspiracy theories. Um, and, you know, I live in Charleston, the site of the Emanuel AME shooting a few years back by Dylan Roof. Um, and so it, I think it, it shows, again, how, you know, religious sites can become sites of, of violence for um, communities that, you know, differ at all from this sort of very narrow um, vision of white Christian nationalism. Um, so certainly disturbing, disturbing, you know, event, but not a totally unprecedented one. And, you know, I think when these kinds of things happen, it's obviously gut-wrenching and, and horrifying as a scholar and a person, um, but it also provides a really useful moment to stop and to resurrect some of these earlier histories of, you know, Jewish presence in America and of, you know, the, the history of anti-Semitism that even as we'd like to think it is gone, um, you know, is always perhaps on some level kind of percolating below the surface and available for people to, to take up. Yes, my uh, my own response, uh, sort of meditating on the whole thing. I, I I listened to a commentary magazine podcast, and they were discussing the event. Uh, and for listeners who don't know, it's a it's a Jewish magazine, but uh, historically conservative. But they were discussing the event, and they were very very shell shocked about the whole thing. And uh, they closed by reading uh, George Washington's letter to. Um, to the Jewish synagogue and it sort of inspired me to do the same thing for my class and and a lot of a lot of people were just kind of shocked like they just had no students were shocked that 
Jews had been America, you know, during the American Revolution. Like, it was sort of an interesting moment um, yeah. of reflection. Yeah, and Lila Corwin Berman's um, op-ed on on this uh, pointed to sort of discourses of American exceptionalism, and 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 talked about how this sort of sense of shock is rooted in a an American exceptionalism that you know scholars have been critiquing for a while, but that this um, you know this event kind of brings to the fore that even as you know the U.S. has been distinctive in many ways, you know it has not been you know it's not been exceptional in that, in that regard. It doesn't get, you know, it doesn't get a free pass from um, these forms of anti-Jewish hatred that, you know, have long transnational histories. And finally, uh, on this pleasant note, um, my, my ritual on the age of Jackson podcast is to end with my favorite James Baldwin quote and to ask my guests to reflect on it, that American history is longer, larger, more various, more beautiful, and more terrible than anything anyone has ever said about it. Professor, because you're a student of history and a teacher of history, what advice would you give to your fellow students and teachers about studying American history with all its beauty and all its terror? Well, first of all, thank you for um, sharing that quote with me. I hadn't heard it before, but it it's wonderful, and I'm probably going to share it with students myself um, later on in the semester as we as we wrap up. But um, yeah, I think I'd say this main thing that that I try to do is to uh, to understand the sort of complexities of American history is to look for people outside of the sort of norm and the expectations to sort of center the experiences of people who, you know, are are not seen as important and who are seen, in fact, as kind of deviant in some way. Um, one of the big projects of the book was to sort of take seriously the religious lives of Jews who lived outside of large cities and who live who practiced Judaism outside of synagogues. And I was responding to historians who had described them as, you know, assimilated or apathetic. Um, but I think when you, you know, really look at what those people themselves are saying and doing, um, and take them seriously kind of on their own terms, um, you get a different perspective. So I think, um, and, you know, that's in part what I'm trying to do also in sort of pointing to Judaism as a model for American religion. It's to sort of, you know, disrupt the the sort of um, standard narratives um, and hierarchies that we have and, and try to think creatively about, you know, how can we understand our world and our history better if we um, look to, to those who have been seen outside of the norm and, and think of them, in fact, as very much of the norm. You have been listening to the Age of Jackson podcast. I have been your host, Daniel Golotta, PhD student in American Religious History at Stanford University. And today we have been discussing with Professor Shari Rabin, Jews on the Frontier, Religion and Mobility in 19th Century America, published with NYU Press. Professor, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.